Hello, Mondo Mercado podcast listeners. Like many of you, we're adjusting to the new world of COVID-19. But don't worry, we are going to have new episodes coming up for you real soon. In the meantime, we want to show you a side project that we've been working on with the Japan America Society of Georgia called Rekipodo. We'll be sharing a couple of episodes, to, and pretty soon we'll be offering new episodes of Mondo Mercado for your listening pleasure. So, without further ado, here's Rekipodo. <laughs> The Japan America Society of Georgia presents Rekipodo, Japanese Stories in Time. Rekipodo is an entertainment podcast where a group of friends share stories based on the history of the nation of Japan. Well, hello again, everybody. Uh, this is Jim Hoadley uh, on uh, this episode of Reki Podo. Uh, I am the uh, Programs Committee Co-Chair for the Japan America Society of Georgia, and I also am the Associate Director of the Center for International Business Education Research at Georgia Tech. And I'm joined here by uh, Yoshi Domoto and Nozomi Morgan. Uh, could you both introduce yourselves, uh, Yoshi? Hello, everyone. My name is Yoshi Domoto with the Japan America Society of Georgia. So good to be back on to the podcast uh, talk and looking forward to our conversation. Yes, hello everyone. I'm Nozomi Morgan, the other chair uh, of the program committee, Japan America Society of Georgia, and um, I'm also the CEO of Tiki Morgan Worldwide. So happy to be here. Well, it's great to have both of you here. Uh, I think our first uh, podcast went, went uh, quite well. I had a lot of fun doing it. I hope you did as well. Uh, I think our topic today is going to be maybe a little bit shorter, uh, but it's going to be, I think, uh, just as much fun. Same as the last one, we are doing it in conjunction with an upcoming watch party, uh, but we are going to talk about a general uh, topic. Yoshi, do you want to let people know uh, what we're doing with the uh, the watch party? Uh, yes. Uh, so we have a uh, Netflix up uh, this Saturday. Will be the but the Saturday after that, uh, next Saturday will be Miss Hokusai, uh, um, a much uh, revered anime uh, movie uh, of the daughter of the famous uh, Miss Hokusai. So. Um, a lot of fun it is highly regarded, uh, but look about, I guess, uh, history, kind of the story behind the story uh, today. Well, thank you, Yoshi, for committing me to uh, editing this very quick so that we can get it out before uh, Saturday's uh, Saturday's watch party. Uh, so I've got that additional incentive. I appreciate that. No, I'm just I'm just having fun. Let's start with kind of a little bit of a, a of a tease. Have either of you watched the the full film, uh, Miss Hokusai? I have not. I have not either, just the, the trailer. Okay. So maybe we should start off with, for the general audience so that they can understand, I don't want to talk about Hokusai first. And actually, I think the name itself, Miss Hokusai, is kind of an unusual one, and I'll explain in a second why I feel that way. But generally, the thing to know about Hokusai, the the, the original Hokusai, um, he was a, an artist um, who lived in Japan, uh, was born on Halloween uh, in 1760. And he is probably the creator of the most famous uh, piece of Japanese art that is known to the world. Uh, I assume that both of you know which one that is. Uh, Nozomi, what, what did Hokusai paint? Oh, the very famous, um, especially I think for um, non-Japanese or, or I guess around the world, the, the most famous is the 
be Fujisan or Fuaku Hyakke. I was going to say the, the, the great, the great wave the great of wave. Uh, Kanagawa, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The great, the great wave of Kanagawa was the one that I was, was thinking of, but you're, you're correct. Nozomi, in that that was, that that was part of the 36 views of, of Mount Fuji that he created. But by the time that Hokusai shows up on the scene, um, the, uh, ukiyo-e is really well in, do you, do, how much do you know about the history of ukiyo-e itself? A little, but not, not too much. So please, um, you probably know more than more than I do, but um, I, I know kind of the basics. Um, please, please uh, like me. Okay. Well, the first thing I guess that I I already committed a mistake when I was talking about it is that I referred to I, I said something about Hokusai and I, I call him an artist. That's fine. That's good. But I I also said painting, and that's a very Western understanding because ukiyo-e were not paintings. Ukiyo-e were woodblock prints. Um, and woodblock prints uh, were the result, the reason that woodblock prints became popular and became successful. Uh, Nozomi, uh, you want to take a stab at it because this is something that we've talked about before. Why do you think that uh, woodblock, first off, were woodblock prints always popular in Japan? Yes or no? And then if no, why not? You know, when, when, did, they, when did they become, what caused them to become popular? Oh no. Okay. I don't, I don't know the, the real answers to this, but um, I would say they weren't always popular, but they um, I think popular through as, um, as the commoners or the, the, as between like the Edo period as the, as a, as the world, the Japanese country um, unified and, and there's the way so, um, wars within the country that um, the common people, especially the, I don't know what you call it in English, I guess the, the business men, business people class really flourished and more art and culture has, um, I guess the Japanese, the Japanese um, culture has really flourished at that period. And I believe um, the wood block prints were a fast way to circulate um books and arts especially manga they would uh, like criticize the ruling class would use the, those woodblock prints that were in like in book forms um manga to like satire um what was going on in in their world at that well, you said you didn't know anything, and you've pretty much nailed everything that I was going to say. But I'll go, I'll go ahead with it anyway. Uh, just add a little bit of embellishment on that. No, that was fantastic. Yeah, it it really the rise of ukiyo-e coincides with the rise of the merchant class. That that Japan was divided into set classes. The merchant class was at the bottom, um, but being the merchants, they had all the money. And so they could indulge in a lot of things that, um, you know, because there was a long period of peace, people were able to accumulate rather significant wealth and they spent it on a lot of different things. They spent it on Bunraku puppet theater. They spent it on Kabuki performances. Uh, they, they spent it on a lot of, of those types of things. And one of the things that they wanted to spend it on was art and entertainment. And they didn't really have 
there was no internet at the time. They, you couldn't just pick up your cell phone. You would get terrible coverage at the time if you picked up your cell phone. <laughs> Plus, people would look at you like, what the heck are you carrying? Uh, and But so the way the, the internet of its time was the art of making things from prints from wood blocks, uh, kind of like, uh, well, maybe not Gutenberg, but uh, similar to uh, many other styles of woodblock print that were created around the world, uh, that by producing it cheaply, now this was the thing, you, you hit it also exactly right there, that for a long time, uh, ukiyo-e were not regarded as high art because they weren't painted by somebody and they could manufacture a whole bunch of them from the same set of blocks so that you could, it was suddenly luxury for the masses. And when it started out, it was basically, it was pictures of historical heroes and uh, beauties, which generally meant very famous courtesans because there weren't any actresses, oh, and kabuki actors as well. There weren't any actresses, of course, because kabuki had the restriction in place that all the parts had to be played, which still exists, that all parts had to be played by men. Uh, so the uh, women who were featured uh, were, were uh, courtesans, and that was pretty much what it was. It started in uh, basically a century before Hokusai. So by the time Hokusai comes on the scene, it's a well-established um, art form or a form of pop art, really. But Hokusai was not, self was not born into a family that produced woodblock prints. His father was actually a mirror maker for the shogun. And from what we know about Hokusai, um, Hokusai actually changed names. This is very common in this period, and it's very common for people who are artists to change their names. Hokusai, we know of at least 30 different name changes that he had during his life when he was going through different phases. Um, so we know him in the West as Hokusai, or actually we know him as Katsushika Hokusai. But the fact that we know him as Katsushika Hokusai tells you something else about him as well in that he didn't receive his father's name and he was not he did not inherit anything from his father the the mirror maker which makes us believe very strongly that Hokusai himself was the was the product of some kind of illegitimate or semi-legitimate relationship that maybe he was the child of a concubine rather than of an official wife of his father the mirror maker and so Hokusai his Father did take some interest in him, put him in an apprenticeship with his with his uh, brother, who was also a mirror maker. Uh, but anyway, as I said, uh, the name Katsushika, I need to pay off on that. He was born in the Katsushika neighborhood of Edo, and that's why we refer to him as Katsushika Hokusai. But uh, so, yeah, first he worked in a lending library. So that was his first exposure to these woodblock prints, because at that time, the woodblock prints they were certainly used for artwork, but they were also used for creating books and manuscripts so that people could share information. And there, that was a big deal back then. That was kind of, instead of browsing the internet, you would go to one of these lending libraries that was full of woodblock prints. So he worked there for a period of time. Then he worked as a wood carver. You can see the, the path towards becoming a great ukiyo-e artist. And then, uh, then he moved on to work for a uh, printmaker later in life. 
So the prints themselves, uh, the term ukiyo-e, do, do, do either of you know what ukiyo-e means? Uki means to float, right? Yes. And then it means what? It means picture. It means or um. Yeah. So so uki. So could it mean a floating painting, a floating picture? Pictures of the floating world. So ukiyo referred to the dream magical world that people wanted to see and wanted to participate. That's why it was pictures of all of these these famous people. It was like having a David Hasselhoff poster on your wall. You know, you had a picture, you had a, a print of your favorite kabuki artist that you put on the wall instead of the Hoff. And <laughs> that, that was what people collected, but that was, they were, they were dreaming. They would stare into that. And it was, it was uh, a, an aspiration for a more beautiful life, a, uh, a more elegant life, a richer life. And so when they started out, they were only focusing on these people, these, these uh, glitterati, if you will. And actually, one of the things that Hokusai did when he started out as an apprentice, he also worked in making these print of kabuki artists and prints of courtesans, because that was the only thing that people wanted. But when his master died, I think Hokusai was probably about 19 years old at the time, maybe in his early 20s. Um, Hokusai said, I'm tired of doing nothing but portraiture. I, I don't just want to be, you know, taking making basically uh pin up you know pinups for the wall i i want to make something more interesting and so he started doing he did still lifes but he was very famous for he decided that he wanted to do vistas of the scenery of japan and the most famous one that he did of course was the 36 views of mount fuji now i nozomi you hit on the fact that some of this stuff that was being distributed was very subversive um, it was critical of the shogunate. Uh, it was bringing up various issues. Um, one that I, I we're definitely going to do at another time. We need to do a full podcast episode on the 47 Ronin Jushingura. That kept popping up and again and again because it was a story of direct, basically, insubordination of what the shogunate had ordered. So it was very, it was seen as very subversive. So any, there are a lot of still existing prints uh, related to that. And of course, uh, because, you know, people are people and, and, you know, they're kind of, you know, nasty and all that. Uh, they also had a lot of um, uh, erotic art as well. And Hokusai definitely uh, produced quite a bit of that. Um, it was very, very lucrative uh, to produce it. If you were an artist and you had any talent, you basically, you would um, have, you'd be producing your mainstream stuff and then you'd have the, the smutty stuff which you really made a lot of money off of because you would sell it to the people who were supposed to be protecting the moral righteousness of the people. And they were the ones who were collecting most of it. So of course they would pay you the highest price. But this is what, uh, what Hokusai was, was doing. Now the, the movie, uh, Miss Hokusai, do you, do you know anything about uh, Oe, his daughter, who is the focus of the movie? I was just going to say, I know her existence, but I don't really much about her yeah just through the trailer that i saw um so i guess uh she was always you know living in her father's kind of shadow and uh, was trying to be a artist herself i'm not sure if, if the movie is accurate um historically but the, the gist of what i got well the movie has to uh 
do the best with what it has. And the fact is, in the historical record, we really don't know a whole lot about Oe. In fact, uh, we don't even have complete agreement as to what her name was. Uh, uh, some places you see it listed as A rather than Oe. Uh, and sometimes you see it orthographized in different ways as well. We don't know her dates of birth exactly. We don't know her dates of death. We don't know exactly who her mother was, although we think it was one of uh, Hoxai's uh, wives. Hoxai's first wife, uh, we believe, died um, in a in a pandemic, uh, and then his. So, at the time, depending on when Oe was born, if if she was born in eighteen hundred, then her mother would have been Hoxai's second wife. But if she was born prior to that, it would have been most likely Hoxai's first wife, who was her mother. But we just don't know. Um, but her her mother uh, uh, died uh, later in life. She was brought on by Hoxai, who was at the time had a reputation for being a very bizarre. He he had the full kind. Of, he was the Andy Warhol of Edo. I mean, that's that's a, the best example I can think of. Of Hoxai, he would move wherever he wanted to move. He would do whatever he wanted to do, and he was, as an artist, he was good enough that he could get away with it. But he was not very, from what we know, he was not very warm or loving or supportive, particularly of his children. But apparently, his daughter Oe was enough like him in personality that. He took her under his wing and trained her how to make woodblock prints. But Oe only made woodblock prints of kabuki artists and courtesans. She didn't do the, that I was able to find. She did not do the same kind of sweeping, uh, you know, uh, scenery, scenic uh, prints that her father was most famous for. And one of the ways that we know that she was really serious about what she did was in 1824 or thereabouts, she married another ukiyo-e artist named Minamisawa Tome. And three years later, she divorced him because she didn't think he was a very good artist. <laughs> it, it's not that he was a jerk or that he was a bad provider. Things. Just, I don't think his art's very good. And so, you know, I'm out of there. Wow. So she left him and she went to go be an apprentice for her father. And she became uh, fairly successful making these, these types of prints. She also, you know, family business, she also did some of the, uh, the works of erotica because, you know, you go where the money is. Uh, but a whole lot of details about her, we don't know. Also in the movie, uh, which is based on a 1980s manga series, there is a sister a, who appears as a character who is blind, who kind of is the person that we use to for expositional purposes. So Oe is explaining different things to her sister in expo exposition uh, Onao. That apparently is a complete concoction of the 1980s manga. There is no evidence of an Onao existing. So a lot of the things that you see in that said, even though the, the, the film and the manga take a lot of license with a lot of things, they still um, try to make it accurate in the sense of things are, are placed correctly. But I mean, some of the, the soundtrack choices, it's about as historically accurate as you know, a knight's tale was. If you remember that movie, that was a good one. 
but I don't think that they listened to Queen back in uh, in uh, medieval Europe. Um, so many of the places that happen uh, in the in Miss Hokusai, one of the great things that I've I, I have heard about the film is that it portrays Edo in all of its both its warts and its its high spots. And so she does spend some time in Yoshiwara, the walled brothel district, uh, finding finding models to to create um, artworks of. So uh, there's also a lot of references to Japanese beliefs and superstitions. There's a lot of uh, appearance of uh, ghosts, Japanese style ghosts in the uh, in the film as well. Don't want to give away too much here on a spoiler, but there are a lot, a lot of ghosts and those ghosts are portrayed in a method that is consistent with you know it's a japanese manga so of course they're they are consistent and accurate with how people would have received ghosts at the time but yeah in the end we think that oe may have passed away in 1866 which if you think about it by 1866 i mean that's practically the the meiji restoration if you think about all of the things in her lifespan if she did indeed live that long that she saw. She saw Japan go from being a closed country uh, to the outside world, to being open, to going through the first initial phases of modernization. That must have been a fascinating time to be alive. And it, it while it's good that we do have some of her art so that we know that she existed, we also, I, I also kind of wish that we would know more about her because this is a person who was already fascinating by herself, comes from a fascinating family, and lives during a very fascinating time in Japanese history. We met a couple of decades, but she, was there any overlap with our other podcast uh, teacher, Jules Brunet? Well, if she died in 1866, she would have died the year before Jules Brunet arrived in Japan. So they would have missed each other by basically about a year. Perhaps he saw some of her artwork, though. Yeah, very interesting. That, I thought that um, she would have passed away much earlier. That That's definitely possible. And given uh, Jules Brunet's uh, penchant that he, that he was a very uh, skilled artist himself, there's no evidence that he saw it, but certainly uh, would, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing to think that he may have seen uh, her work. And of course, her father, Hokusai. Oh, uh, one other thing that I want to say about Hokusai. The, the Great Wave off Kanagawa do you know why that particular, I mean, it's the composition is beautiful. The, the, the more you look at it, the more things that you, you pull out of it. It's, it's great on all those levels. But do you know the real reason that the great wave off Kanagawa by, by Katsushika Hokusai, why it became so famous? And it actually relates to color. Got me on that one. So at about at the time, one of the things that made that series, the, the, the 36 views of Mount Fuji, that made it so successful, and what, particularly that particular one, why it was so successful, is that Japan had just been introduced through Dejima to the color Prussian blue. And if you think about the great wave off Kanagawa, it's this fantastic explosion of blue hues. And it was all done, it was all printed in Prussian blue, which, as you can guess from the name, was a European invention. And it had not existed in Japan prior to that. If you look at the earlier stuff by people like Harunobu and Morunobu and, and that sort of stuff, it fades over time. It doesn't have the, the depth and it doesn't have the, the, the pure blue color that Prussian blue does. And that was one of the things that Hokusai wanted to create 
with that series is he wanted to show off it was it was showing off new technology and the new technology in this case were the new pigments that had become available including prussian blue and that's why it was so popular in japan and then when the europeans started showing up three quarters of a century later uh, let's say a century later when the europeans started showing up a century later they were exposed to it because everybody had it they then took it home with them to places like france where it then served as an inspiration for the artists in Europe who were creating the Impressionist movement and post-Impressionism. So for people like Monet and uh, Van Gogh and all of these other great pa painters, there is direct evidence that they received, looked at, and were inspired by these, these woodblock prints, which were only created because they were able to get access to a European technology, which would, in this case was Prussian blue. So I do find that kind of interesting in the context of we think of Japan as a closed country, and it was, but there was a lot of, even with it being closed, there was a lot of influence going back and forth, even across those thousands of miles and across the, the, the many months that it would take to sail back and forth. Somehow they managed to get enough Prussian blue that they could produce this series that was a huge smash hit because it was on woodblock prints. And so as a print, you can keep producing as many as you want. I think I have a new favorite color now. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm more in the cobalt blues, but uh, Prussian blue is wonderful. Yes. Jim, what, what do you think about um, some of the influences that I guess not just um, Hokusai, but Oe had the art community outside of Japan. Well, Oe, uh, definitely she had learned her, her portraiture style uh, from her father, and there's a great deal of similarity there, although uh, you can you could definitely see differences. She had, she had her own particular style. Um, I believe that there were some of the Western artists who managed to see some of her prints, but I don't know which ones uh, and what specific influence they may have had. But um, she definitely contributed. And if you look back at the list of great um, ukiyo-e artists, there are very few female names listed. So it's remarkable that she was able to contribute as much as as she did. We just wish that we knew a little bit more, more about her. Now, the interesting thing is if you make a woodblock print today, you can make a woodblock print, but you cannot make an ukiyo-e anymore because the ukiyo-e referred specifically to this line of woodblock prints that were produced. Oh, and another thing as well, in addition to Prussian blue, the other thing that, that Hoxai learned from the Dutch and from European art was the art of forced perspective, because everyone who came before him, and that was really what made his landscapes pop. Prior to Hoxai, there was a very flat affect by most of the artists, but Hoxai got a hold of and studied some European art and saw what Europeans were doing with perspective, and he incorporated that in his uh, woodblock prints, which really was another, in addition to the, the bright blue colors and, and the red, of course, on the Akafuji, um, in addition to those bright colors, also the more, the greater uh, depth of, of image also made them very appealing to people. So it's, it's easy to see even today, uh, you know, someone once said this of Shakespeare, but I think it applies to Hoxai as well, 
the amazing thing about Hokusai is that he really is good in spite of all the people who say he is. Because there's a tendency of people like to venerate certain people, and you're like, I don't understand why that person is particularly famous. But with Hokusai, you can look at it even today, and it really it still resonates. And of course, Hokusai's daughter, with if you look at the portraiture, you can really get a sense, particularly if you go today and you go, of course, there's no longer courtesans, but you can still go to Kabuki Theater and you can use the, the woodblock prints from hundreds of years ago and you can look at the artists, on, or the performers on stage and you will know who is who because there's been that's been passed down generation to generation and they are copying the same the same the same makeup style the same performance style and the artists were also so good at capturing the essence of what those character who those characters were and what they were doing jim i know you're not a uh, art art dealer <laughs> um but a million dollar question i guess um literally um how how much uh, I guess are some of Hokusai's work. I, I know they are by name prints, um, but uh, for some of um, his works uh, worth. If you get a print that's produced very early in the run, uh, then the colors are going to be more distinct. The the woodblock prints, because they're made out of wood, uh, each color, of course, is laid on by a successive layer of woodblock, uh, of, of woodblocks that are cut specifically for that color. Earlier prints in general are going to have a finer quality to them. Uh, the images are going to be clearer later on as the print making blocks are wearing down, it starts to get more blurry. And of course, that was the other thing was that makes that makes pricing woodblock prints difficult is that if you created an artwork, really what you would do for most woodblock printers, although not Hokusai, Hokusai actually carved his own blocks, but for most woodblock printers or ukiyo-e artists, they would actually paint a painting and then they would have assistants who would carve wooden blocks based on that painting and then make it into a woodblock print that they could then produce however many they could sell. Hokusai actually did carve some of his own blocks. We know that for sure because he was a skilled uh, wood carver and we have evidence, less of evidence that supports that. That said, I mean, an original first run Hokusai, wow. I mean, it's it. how do you price the Mona Lisa? I mean, it. it some of them are really like the, the first run of the Great Wave off of Kanagawa. It is, it, it's so pricey that an average Average person, they they can you can only see them in museums. They are they are such an incredible contribution to uh, humanity and to our collective art that I really I I hesitate to even try and put a price uh, on them. I think you're, when you said it was a million dollar question, it, it, if you had to put a price on it, it would be in millions. But really, they're 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 priceless. It's, it's really interesting uh, the art world. Um, you know, other than museums, collectors of Japanese art are not Japanese, right? A lot of them are from the US or from, from Europe. Um, so hopefully one of our listeners, uh, maybe an art, him or herself, will maybe have a, a kind of a, a piece of treasure that they don't even know that they have, uh, maybe a work of Owe, right? So yes. I think it's really interesting with is that uh, at that time, so for the Japanese who, li who lived through that time, it, it wasn't art, right? So it was like a newspaper, basically, poster through art was actually the people in Europe, there's a, a, a lot of different stories around that, but that it was used as just basically like a newspaper was used to um, wrap uh, as a wrapping paper. And um, I think that when Japan was still closed and they were still, but they were exporting to the Dutch, um, like lacquer and all those, the, the 
merchandise at that time, right? So that's how they were they discovered uh, Europeans or the uh, what is this? This is amazing, and then, so I think that's how it got started famous, but also this is where, um, um, and I think the world expo that was in France and in, in Paris, 1800s was a time and had a big impact in, on Japan um, because that was where Japanese traditional art was um, Japan, or the uh, Japan pavilion. Um, I think probably for the first time um, out in the world, not a lot of other Japanese art forms were showcased to the world. So I think how a lot of the so-called Japanese art, uh, the value comes from external rather than internal. The Europeans were the ones who really who, um, put that label and say, this is art amazing. Later on, Japanese, really, is it that amazing? So I had them in their attic or basement, uh, but they thought nothing threw it out or, or burn it or, and, and all that. So I think it's really interesting. How this, we can all see the same thing, but depending on who the value, you know, yes, I'm. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Yeah, the the wrapping of uh, things that the Japanese perceived as having value, like ceramics that they were they were exporting abroad, and they wrapped in like, what are we going to wrap it with? Well, let's wrap it with this this original hokusai. Like now today, you just think about it, and you're like, oh my god, you're going to do what? But that that was you're exactly right. That's how a lot of it got out into the world, and and people were were seeing it. Um, and I also want to encourage if there are people listening who enjoy that type of art, of course, uh, you, there are lots of reproductions that you can get but if you want to get something original that is actually produced with pressing a a, a wood wooden block that is carved into it's actually a series of wooden blocks that are carved into the various shapes to make an image if you want to, to get a copy of that to that you can't obviously you can't afford yoshi that deals with your price question you can't the average person can't touch even a a, a late you know uh an early mid 1800s uh, ukiyo-e. But there are prints that are more recent. There were a number of artists in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s who there were a couple of movements. One was called the Shin-Hanga movement, and that's people like uh, Hasui um, who produced, they incorporated some more Western techniques but they still portrayed very Japanese um, uh, scenes at the time. Now, Hasui is still pretty expensive, but there are other artists as well who are maybe not quite as famous as Hasui. But you can get those, you can get originals for less than $100 if you uh, hunt hard enough. And some of the artwork is really, uh, really beautiful. I have, I have some of it in my house. And you can, you know, you can cover your walls for the price that you, and it's an original by the artist or the artist's studio. And you can have it for the cost of a printed lithograph that would be from some poster factory. Uh, I, I don't understand why people aren't getting more more on that. But if you, uh, it's kind of a, an encouragement of people to go out and look for, for Shin Hanga and Sosaku Hanga. The difference being that Shin Hanga is very much more realistic looking and Sosaku Hanga is more of the artist is contributing their creativity. They look a little bit crude but they're also expressing more feelings and uh, sensations rather than just trying to capture a particular scene. Uh, and some, there were a number of artists who worked in both fields. They are kind of today the inheritors of the mantle from the ukiyo-e artists. And they use a lot of the same techniques, but they also incorporate uh, some Western techniques as well. Very popular uh, and the prices could could go up very quickly. So I encourage people to, if you're interested, to look into uh, Shin Hanga and Sosaku Hanga. That's great advice, Jim. But I'll, uh, 
what I'm always fascinated about Hanga, the woodblock prints, is that it's basically made by a team, you know, because the person who paints the picture, the horishi, or it could be the who actually carves the woodblock. And then in order to make that into the final product, you need the surishi, who actually is the printer, I guess. So you have to have team that creates so we all the whole site but actually that was able to create that or the like a publishing house was basically create and circulate I think it's such a modern way of art i think that's why like you you it's really the same they the mass production of of art and it's also why it's so fascinating probably resonates with today's today's audience that's a great point nozomi i i think that the really fascinating thing is at the time the woodblock prints woodblock was the easiest way to produce mass volumes and so they had very little value to the japanese because they thought well you can produce a whole bunch today when we talk about people actually pressing color into uh paper with painted blocks of wood to the, us from our modern perspective that seems to be a very old-fashioned technique because the throughput on that is so much lower and it still requires a level of skill in order to do it correctly, to get everything aligned so that the, the print actually comes out uh, correctly. And so today, of course, with modern inkjet printers, but an inkjet printer could print me out a, a something that looks exactly like um, the Great Wave off of Kanagawa. And I can have that in my house and I can print it on super nice paper for you know maybe a couple of bucks and because the main cost is the paper and I'll have it and it will be there and I can just slap that on my wall. And if you enjoy that, definitely enjoy that. But the original, the, the Hanga as well is out there and it's something that you can, you can enjoy and it, you can tell that people have actually touched it and that it's been made by a group of people as you, exactly as you pointed out, that a group of artisans who had skill and training and worked together to create this. And it just, it's a different sensation from something that's produced by a machine. Well, it sounds like we need to uh, do a, a woodblock kind of a hanga work for it when, uh, when we can and kind of learn things uh, firsthand. And uh, we'll definitely all appreciate things a little bit, all the hard work that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, I think that's something that when we get a, a chance, we should we should do that, whether it's uh, whether it's virtually or whether it's uh, hopefully in person, and it's a full indulgent sensory experience to see them being produced. Uh, and I really hope that everybody gets an opportunity to do that someday very soon. So in, in Japanese public schools, where I grew up, we, we did that at classes, even from a very young age. That's something that we only do at and Ozomi-san, you talked about, um, you know, at a young age in Japan, um, you know, kids do it, right? Um, I actually, you know, grew up and, and I was uh, born there and stayed there until I was eight. So for, for, for me to graduate, quote, from Hoikuen or preschool, going into first grade, we had to do our own um, print, our own. And yeah, we had, we had to use the tool. Um, you know, we had a lot of supervision, but... Um, but yeah, so I, I still have my print. So, um, but I guess it's ingrained in us. Um, I guess in Japan, you know, I'm not sure if they do it. But, um, for a lot of us growing up, um, the, in the 80s, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's it's kind of childhood, right? Uh, when I take students to Japan for study abroad to train them how to get around Tokyo and how to use the mass transit system. Hopefully my students aren't listening to this because I usually spring it on them as a surprise. 
but I have an augmented reality. Uh, you basically, you can set up your own augmented reality three-dimensional kind of scavenger hunt. So kind of like uh, kind of like Pokemon Go, only instead of searching for Pokemon, you're you're searching for places or locations. And what I do with the Shinhanga is I actually have created one that you can go through Tokyo and you find locations today from the Shinhanga that shows them from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Wow. And then when you get close enough to it, you get points. It's just like, it's in that regard, it's just like doing Pokemon Go. But I set that up and there's probably, I think I got 75 or so, destina- roughly 75 destinations around around Tokyo that people can uh, walk to and, and get points. And you'll see the the portrait and then you'll see the Hanga and then you'll see the place that it's actually of. Oh, that's amazing. I would love to, do you call it play it? Or I would love to try it. Maybe next time when I go to Japan, I can. If it's still active and you're in, in, in Tokyo, I will give you a link and you can follow along. All right. We got very, rather far afield from talking about uh, Oe, but you know, in part that's because we don't, know a whole, we don't know a whole lot about her, although we do know that you know, she was a very talented artist uh, on, almost on the level with, with her famous father, perhaps even more so, but less recognized. The movie itself should be interesting, even though it is heavily fictionalized. It still has some of the key elements uh, correct, and it will introduce people to a fascinating period in history and a fascinating place, which was uh, Edo in the uh, early 1800s prior to the arrival of uh, Commodore Perry and the black ships. So with that, I think uh, we'll we'll wrap it up. And uh, thank you again for uh, our, our indulging me and having our, our wonderful conversation. And I'm very much looking forward to the watch party, the, the film coming up. Hope to see both of you there as well. Yes, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I learned so much again. You, This is so, thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, it's, it's always a treat. And uh, yeah, I learned so much with all of these podcasts. And uh, yeah, definitely encourage everyone listening um in the art world there's so much story be- behind the art that i, I think you'll you'll definitely uh, get a whole new adventure and kind of learning about the artist um uh, so i definitely encourage everyone to do that and to learn about not only hope so always um, um yeah hopefully we'll see you our uh watch party uh miss hokusai all right thank you everybody thank you, you take care yeah. cheers Kipodo is a production of the Japan America Society of Georgia, a certified 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to promote mutual understanding between the people of Japan and the state of Georgia through establishing and promoting ties and programs in the areas of culture, customs, education, commerce, and politics. While there have been reasonable attempts to ensure the accuracy of the historical information presented in this podcast, the presenters of Rekipodo are not professional historians. Rekipodo is presented for entertainment purposes only. No guarantee of accuracy is stated or implied. 
The opinions of the speakers are their own and do not represent an official statement of the Japan American Society of Georgia. Production of Rikipodo is made with the assistance of the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education Research. The music of Rikipodo is provided by Peritune under a Creative Commons license. Peritune can be found on SoundCloud or P-E-R-I-T-U-N-E.com.